Good morning. Excited to preach out of this passage this morning, and as um, was mentioned before, we are starting a new series. We had done for at least a few months, had done a series on the New Covenant where we covered uh, just how richly blessed we are through the New Covenant, this new contract God has made with us, um, a covenant that was... um, that is found in the blood of Jesus, so it all comes through Jesus. And now we're starting a series that um, asks this question and seeks to answer it from week to week. How do we now live? Now that we have this, uh, these rich blessings through Christ, immeasurable blessings through Jesus, um, all spiritual blessings as it says in Ephesians 1, how do we now live? And this is a massive question, an incredibly important question. Because if the, if the Christian life is all about gaining more and more information, more and more knowledge, that doesn't, that doesn't um, change us so we hit the ground running and our lives change, then it's in vain. It doesn't matter. If the Christian life is all about our heads becoming larger, spiritually speaking, and our hearts not becoming enlarged, and our spiritual bodies not being strengthened for the life that is to be lived, then it is all futile. It doesn't matter. So this is a a huge question. How do we now live as faithful Christians with all these blessings we have found in the new covenant through Jesus Christ? And it's all through Christ. It's not because we're nice people or because we show up to church. It's all through Jesus and our faith in Christ. So, when I read these verses this last week, I mean, honestly, I was so tempted, not because last week's message was incomplete in any way, but I was almost tempted to go back to verse 1 and just do another message on that. I'm not going to. But I do want to lead into verses 2 to 6 by spending a moment in verse 1. Because I, I read verse 1, I couldn't get past verse 1. Paul is so serious here about what he wants to say to us. Paul is blood earnest. He is very serious about what he has to say in the rest of Ephesians, ver- uh, chapters 4 to 6. So verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I just was like, man, he means what he's going to say here. And it just dawned on me that sometimes I read the Bible like it's full of nice suggestions if it works out or if I feel like it. And maybe we do that, maybe you do that too. And so I just wanted to spend a moment here looking at verse 1 and trying to get into Paul's mind and into his heart so we can get a feel for why he is so urgent and serious here. And then we'll move on to verses 2 to 6. So notice first, I mean, the word therefore shows us great earnestness and passion in Paul. In fact, the word therefore, I think, is the most important word in the verse. Anytime you see the word therefore... When we're reading the Bible, we should wonder, what did it just get done saying? Anytime we see the word therefore, we should say, what is the word therefore, therefore? Why is it there? 
And of course, Paul just gets done in Ephesians 1 to 3, talking about how richly blessed we are. In chapter 1, I think in verse 4, it says, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ belong to us as Christians. Chapter 2, you guys probably, many of you know this, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not a work of yourselves, it is a gift from God so that no one can boast. Chapter 3 goes into the riches of this grace that we receive, this, the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of God that has come to us through Christ. So we are blessed. But I wanted to just take the two verses prior to chapter 4, verse 1. Because all of what I just got done saying and all that Reed said last week is absolutely, absolutely true. But I, I thought of verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3 as well as the most immediate context in which Paul says, therefore. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Therefore, therefore, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Paul just gets done praising God, right? This is a, what we call doxology. He's praising God. Now to this, this God who is able to do beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Therefore, live a life worthy of the calling you've received in Christ. But I also think of how Paul says this in verse 1 again. I therefore, listen to how Paul presents himself. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Anytime you hear somebody that has gone to prison for what they believe, and they're about ready to say something to you that you think is important, it's wise to listen, right? Paul has been, is in prison as he's writing this, and he's been put in prison for the things that he said up until now in Ephesians, and he's, put in, and he's in prison for the things that he's about ready to say. He says, I am a prisoner for the Lord for these things that I'm telling you. And so we, nice, comfortable, upper-middle-class Americans here in Ankeny, we should say, man, Paul went to jail for these things, so I better listen up. And then look at what Paul says. He says, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you. The word urge could be translated, I appeal to you. I beg you. Paul is appealing to us. To live a certain kind of way. He wants us to live in a way that honors and glorifies God, in a way that is in keeping with this new, all these new covenant blessings that have come to us. And so, how do we, how should we now live? The first thing Paul addresses is this unity in the church. Unity in the church as a whole. And But he's, he's talking, obviously, to one church here, the church of Ephesus. And this is a letter that probably was circulated to other churches around there. So the individual churches that would receive this would say unity in the church, in the, the local church as well. And so Paul addresses, first and foremost, unity in 
the church. The Bible tells us why unity is such a massive and important topic. Listen to what Psalm 133 says. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. How good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. This place where there's unity among God's people, brothers and sisters in Christ, united together, that's where God's blessing is. There the blessing of the Lord is. Right? And and I love how it says in Psalm 133, there the Lord commands his blessing. He says, I like that. I'm commanding my blessing right there. So this is a huge and important topic for us to talk about and take up. Jesus also says in John 17, this is what is called the high priestly prayer. He's he's praying to God right before he's to be crucified. And he's praying for his disciples, the 12 that were with him and the band of believers that were still following him. And then he's also praying for all those who would believe after his death, burial, and resurrection through the apostles' witness. Here's what he says. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This is our witness before the world, too. Right? This is, a, this is a huge part of our apologetic, not just the words that we speak, but the way that we live together, the way that we are united as one in Christ together. And I love how it says that the world may know that you sent me and that the world may know that you loved them, Christians, just as you loved me. That's what Jesus is saying. So this is a really important topic. So what is this unity? That's what verses 3 to 6 address for us. Verse 3, I think, is the key verse. Verses 4 to 6, I think, help to support and define what this unity is and what it looks like and what it's based on. Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is a deep togetherness. It is not mere agreement on peripheral things. It's not just that we are generally nice people who can get along with others and, and so we just let things slide. It's, not, it's something deeper than that. It is a deep togetherness. In fact, the, the, the word unity comes from the root word for one. For one. So you might say that biblical unity is a oneness of our lives 
based and found in Christ. Notice that it's a unity of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that human beings can produce. It's not something that we can figure out. It's not something we can get our heads together and figure this thing out. It's something that the Spirit of God produces, and He must produce it. It is a divine unity produced by the Holy Spirit. I love, and this is where I always go, when I want a picture of this, I go to the book of Acts, and I look in Acts 2, verses 40 to 44 to 47. Listen to this, and don't even listen for the specifics, but just the sense of oneness and togetherness. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is, a, this is something that human beings can't just put together. This is a unity of the Holy Spirit. Unity produced by the Holy Spirit. Notice also the word maintain. We are called as Christians to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So this isn't something that we produce. It's not something that we build. It's merely something that we are called. Merely is the wrong way to put that. But it's something that we preserve. Think of us as like, we're like the maintenance crew. Okay? This unity of the Holy Spirit, He produces it. It's His work, and then we are called with His help in Christ to preserve this unity, this togetherness, this oneness that we have in Christ. And then it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This unity that the Holy Spirit produces, that we are called to maintain and do it with eagerness, is bound or held together by something. Namely, it's held together by peace. It's held together by peace. And I think what Paul has in mind is peace with each other. Not primarily peace with God, although that certainly is massively important and is the basis for our peace with one another. But Paul, I think, mainly has in mind our peace with one another. So this unity of the Spirit that we maintain or call to maintain is in the bond of peace. It is in this this thing that, that holds us together called peace. In a group like this, in a larger group, five or more, or maybe 20 or more, something like that, when we get into a group of people, we tend to focus on the things that put us in different categories. And I'm not, I'm not saying like racist things or anything. I'm just saying we just, we just do that. Some people are taller than me and some are shorter and some wear glasses and some don't and some are bigger and some are smaller and some are black and white and Hispanic, etc. Right? We just, we do this. We just, we put, we put people in different categories um, based on differences. But the bond of peace is made up of the things that bring us together and hold us together. It is a bond of peace. 
Another way that the word bond is translated, the Greek word is translated, is ligament. Right? What does a ligament do? It holds two bones together or joint together. It's that, that tough, sinewy material. Material is not the right word, but that holds bones together or holds a joint together. And peace is meant to do that. It's meant to hold us together. It's the things that bring us together and keep us together. And I love how Paul says, just going right along with this sense of urgency and seriousness, Paul wants us to be eager to do this. In other words, if we, if we are going for a lackadaisical unity, that's what we'll get. Or excuse me, if we are lackadaisical in maintaining this unity, we just will have a lackadaisical unity. And it won't be the unity of the Spirit. To be eager means to be diligent. In fact, I think the New American Standard Bible uses the word diligence, with all diligence. To be eager means to exert great energy. Oh my gosh, some people are thinking, what? To exert great energy in the church? I thought we were just supposed to come here and worship and leave just, you know... Only uplifted with nothing to do. No, exert great energy to do this. Or it could be translated, make every effort. Don't be afraid of some hard grace-based work. Right? It's all... It's, it's, remember the therefore in verse one, therefore live a life worthy of the calling you've received. We have to remember the therefore, but we can't forget the command because of what Christ has done, because he's united us, because he's bound us together by his blood. And because the Holy Spirit is seeking to produce this unity among us, therefore, Live a life worthy, which means be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This kind of unity will not be maintained automatically. It must be fought for. Diligent. So, we are called to be diligent to preserve true unity that the Holy Spirit produces based on the things that hold us together, like a ligament holds two bones together. So what are these things that hold us together? Verses 4 to 6 tell us. Verses 4 to 6 help define what this bond of peace is. Thankfully, we're not left wondering, what do we do then? Or what are these things that hold us together? Paul tells us. Let's read these. I'm going to read verses 4 to 6 and then take a step back and we'll go through them one by one. There is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. It's easy to see what the most important word is there, isn't it? What is it? 
What word is repeated over and over again? Seven times to be exact. One. Right? One. The optimal word is one. Here's what holds us together. Let's go through these. There's one body. There's one body. There's one body of Christ of which we are part. Right? There's one body. We are the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ. There's not two or three or four or five different bodies. We're not trying to fit into one of them. There is one. You're either in that one or you are not part of the body. There is one body. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, in these verses, Paul is talking specifically about Jew and Gentile and how God has knocked down the dividing wall between them and made them one body. And if God is able to knock down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, he's able to knock down the dividing wall between every single one of us. And in fact, he has. Right? And I love how it says he killed the hostility. He got rid of it. He slayed all hostility between Jew and Gentile, between black, white, Hispanic, between rich and poor, etc. We are, there is one body. Now, think about this. I, this thought came to my mind. It's kind of corny, but um, I think First Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 certainly lend to this analogy. If my finger gets really mad at my eye and decides to poke it, my whole being says, ouch, right? I, as a total person, say, ouch, that hurts. So when we are not united together in oneness, the finger and the eye that may not be united together, they may think they're just hurting each other, but they're not. They're, they're hurting the entire body. Because we are, there's one body. And I would even say, here at Real Life Church, we are one body. Part of the body of Christ. We are one body. Not only is there one body, there's also one spirit. I love what Ephesians 2.18 says. It says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Isn't that amazing? And we, we have this, you know, we come together on Sunday and we sing these songs and there's like, there's one road that leads up to God when we worship him in spirit and in truth. And it is through one spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. And it's through him that we have access to God. Now, I understand that some might walk closer to God than others, but if you are in Christ, 
You have access to God through the same Spirit as the Apostle Paul did. Or Billy Graham does. Or you fill in the blank. There is one Spirit. This unites us. If you're born again by the Spirit of God, that same Holy Spirit came into you and breathed life into your dead corpse that came into me and breathed life into my dead corpse. There is one Spirit. There's one hope. There's only one eternal and bright and glorious hope. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says this. He prays for the people of Ephesus. He says, I pray that you have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called. The hope. There is one hope, and it is eternally bright and amazing. When we come together, no matter what your next week looks like, or your next year, or next five years, it may look bleak. But we have one hope in Christ that we can celebrate and shout and praise God for. Are you with me? Are you with me? Which is why we sing. If we sing based on how our past week has been or how our next week looks or how this morning went, we'll have very weak and paltry worship. We have one hope. There is one Lord. One Lord. The Greek Septuagint uses this word translated Lord, kurios, to translate the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord in the Old Testament, which was given to God as a title of absolute sovereign authority over the entire universe. That's Jesus. That's who he is. There is one Lord. We bow in allegiance to one Lord. King Jesus. When he stood before his disciples after he rose from the dead and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he is claiming, I am the one Lord. There's one Lord that we are united together bowing before. Aren't we? There's one faith. When, I, when it talks about one faith, I think it's talking about that not that we have the same measure of faith or believe in exactly the same kind of way, like, you know, how, how, when did you believe in Jesus? How did that come about? Not that. But I think it's talking about the body of doctrine that constitutes, constitutes Christian faith. The Christian faith. Or the Christian truth. Uh, Jude writes in verse 3, he said, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I, I felt this great urge that I had to write to you in order to contend for the faith. The faith. And when he was talking about the faith, he's talking about this, this body of truth that we have as Christians of what is true and what is not, of who God is and who he's not, of what Christ has done and what he hasn't done. 
of what it means to be saved and how we get saved and all of that, there's one faith. Now, right here, some may be very skeptical because one thing we know, don't we, is that the church of Jesus Christ uh, does not have one faith, but seems to be fractured in lots of places over doctrinal matters. And of course, that's true. Uh, but let's, let's say five of us went into a room and we all had a Bible, even the same translation, okay, or same version. So an English standard version. <clears throat> Never mind. Um, and so we went into a room and five of us went into a room. We looked at a passage and we came out with five different conclusions from that passage. The problem is clearly not with the Bible, right? Same Bible. The problem is with human beings. There is one faith. There is one truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what does this look like? There's one faith that you and I are seeking to grow in and understand better and grow up into. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, when he says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So in other words, Paul is saying, here he's saying we need to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit, and we are attaining progressively to the unity of the faith. There is one faith. In reality, there is one faith we all should seek to understand. And not just carry traditions we've had forever, but seek to understand the faith. Seek to understand truth. We should all seek to contend for what is true and true Christian doctrine. And we should all seek to grow up into the truth and the faith. So there's one faith. It says it right here. It's not even just me saying that. God's word says it. There's one baptism. That's the next thing. There's one baptism. What does this mean? Does it mean immersion in water, being baptized, going under the water and coming back up? Other traditions believe in, um, and not even just, Catholicism, but Protestant traditions believe in infant baptism or sprinkling water on people. What is that? What is this talking about? Well, for help, I want to look at Galatians chapter 3, because I think it helps us understand probably what Paul is getting at here. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And then it says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. So we're sons of God through faith. And then it says, for or because as many of you as were baptized into Christ, baptized in Jesus, you have put on Christ. So what does this mean? What is this one baptism deal here? Well, remember what baptism represents or symbolizes, right? We believe here, we practice a baptism by immersion. Okay, so someone would come up, we'd have a baptismal up here, and we would, they would go underwater, they'd go down and come back up to symbolize our death, burial, 
and resurrection with Jesus. And it symbolizes that by virtue of our faith in Christ, we have been united to Jesus Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. So when it says there's one baptism for Christians, I think that's what it's getting at. Is that we all, think about this, we all, because we trust in Christ, if you trust in Jesus, if you have believed in him, we all have been united with Christ in his death. It's like we were nailed to the truth. And that's why Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. We were united with Jesus in his burial. That old man has been buried in the grave. And we've been united with Jesus in his resurrection to newness of life. There's one baptism in Christ. And last, there is one God and Father. This is probably... These, this is probably the, um, one that we most readily experience because we call each other brothers and sisters and all that, which is cool. I love that. But let's think about this. We are, we are all part of the same family. I, I love Hebrews 2.11, which says, um, says something like, uh, Though, both the one who sanctifies... And those who are being sanctified, in other words, Jesus and those who are being sanctified, namely Christians, are all from one source. Which means we have one Father. We have one Father. And not even just, I mean, it's cool to think of us having one Father in heaven. But it lumps us in with Jesus too. Which I think is really pretty cool. We have a big brother, Jesus, and he has brought us into God's family. We have one father. So, these are the things that bind us together. These are the things that bring us together in truth and hold us together. So, in in other words, if if the things that unite us are musical preference, skin color, economic status, social status, age or age range, some narrow doctrinal position on a truth, and truth matters, don't, give me, don't misunderstand me, but some narrow understanding on a particular truth or some one particular or two particular gifts of the Holy Spirit, if these are the things that unite us, it is a frail and weak unity produced by man. And it is doomed to fail. It's not produced by the Holy Spirit. It's like a house of cards trying to stand up against the wind on a windy Iowa summer day. It gets pretty windy sometimes. So how do we diligent... That, that, so these are the things that unite us. How do we diligently preserve this unity of the Spirit based on the things that hold us together, based on these things, these one things, these things that that unite us, that bring us together in oneness. Verse 2 tells us. Here's what it says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
Now, if you're going to start a company, or if you looked at like a Fortune 500 company, let's say you're starting a company and you want it to be successful, of course. One of the top tier values may not be gentleness. Right? Or patience. Why do we have to be patient? Because people need patience. Or bearing with people. Hey, listen, in this new company we're going to start, we're going we're gonna to take this world by storm. But here's one of our main values. Listen, bear with people that make mistakes. <laughs> Probably not. But this, these are God's values. These are the values of God's kingdom. How do we maintain this unity? With humility. It's the easiest thing for me to do. I'm just being honest. To walk into a room and assume and act like I'm the most important person there. That what I have to say matters most. That what I think about things matters most. But this says humility. Gentleness. It's the opposite of being rough and hard and rude. Patience. It's the opposite of being short-tempered and quick-tempered to, you know, let someone have it. Or, if, or like me, I'm probably more the passive-aggressive kind of temper guy. Patience. Bearing with one another. The opposite of that, what is that? It's being easily offended and holding on to a grudge. So how does this work for us? How do we, how do we diligently, eagerly um, work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? I just want to end with a few exhortations. First, repentance. That could be my first application in every message I give. Because I think anytime we come face to face with God's word, anytime we, if God has spoken this morning, anytime he speaks to us, there are things we need to turn from, which is what repentance is. And don't, don't think of repentance as like has to be this long drawn out. I'm weeping. I'm in my, in my closet wailing before God. It's just Martin Luther said repentance is a daily thing for Christians. It is I am adjusting my thinking. I am turning from that. And I'm turning to Christ. So repentance. Imagine if verse uh, 3 or verse 2 said this. With all self-importance and roughness, being short-tempered and easily offended, tear down the unity of the Spirit. If or where any of those has described you in any way, repent and turn from it. Number two, if there is someone against whom you are offended, go to them Today. Today. Don't wait till tomorrow. It may not seem like that big a deal tomorrow. Go to them today. Here's what Colossians 3.13 says. Sounds very similar to part of our 
passage here. Bearing with one another, and if if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Go to them today and work it out. Forgive them. Confess to them. Tell them how they've offended you. Or if you know that you've offended somebody else, go to them today. Don't wait another day. Number three, deliberately and consistently prioritize being with one another, namely being with the church. Choose the way of love over selfishness, and that's really what it is. Choose the way of love over selfishness. This kind of unity that's being talked about here, it only happens when we are together. It doesn't make any sense if we're not together. Right? And it only happens when we're actually in the same room together and we're hanging out and doing stuff together. So, deliberately and consistently prioritize being with one another. Prayer meetings or men's groups or men's social nights or women's outings or whatever, okay? Deliberately and consistently prioritize that. There are other things you prioritize, no doubt. No doubt. Number four, give time daily to pray for the church. And I would say pray for the church universal, for sure. I mean, do that. But I would even say very specifically to pray for this church. There may be, there may be nothing that unites my heart in love towards you than when I'm just praying for you. And it's not that I'm just praying about difficult situations that are going on or problems within the church, but just offering up thanksgiving to God and maybe praying for specific people as the Lord brings them to mind and just praying that God would bless us, that God would richly come and visit us. I, my heart overflows with love and just a sense of oneness with you when I do that. Number five, remind yourself often of these things that hold us together. Remind yourselves often of these things that hold us together. These priorities from the Holy Spirit. These things are His priority. These one things, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. In fact, I'll get even more specific. This just came to me because I'm going to do this. Put a reminder on your phone for like 8.30 or 9 every Sunday so that as you're getting ready for church or as you're on your way here, you are thinking about, I am getting, I, I am going to meet with people this morning that I am united with in Christ. We are, there is oneness in Jesus and we are united in one body. We are going to be approaching one God and Father
by one Holy Spirit, we are going to rejoice together in one eternal and bright hope. We are going to contend and grow up in one faith. We are going to joyfully bow in worship before one King and Lord. We are going to be energized by the life and power of one baptism. We're going to draw near to our one God and Father. And finally, six, I I just would say, may we yield to the Holy Spirit. It's a unity of the Spirit. May we find ourselves just saying, these things, you know what? This is going to mess with my schedule. I don't have time to go talk to someone today about my offense with them. I got stuff to do. I can't fit time in to meet with brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Which may not be true, but, but that we would yield to the Holy Spirit. And you say, Lord, Holy Spirit, have, we sing this often, but something like, have your way. I surrender to you and your ways. Why? Because this is how we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. This is how we walk in a way that honors and glorifies God because truly God is worthy of this kind of commitment to him and to his people. Let's pray. Father, here we are, Lord. We are weak and frail, but we are yours and we are in Christ. And you have brought us together in the most dynamic way, in a way that is so amazing in a way only you could. And so I pray, God, that we would take these truths seriously, that we would soak ourselves, immerse ourselves in these things, these things that unite us together in oneness, and that we would give ourselves diligently and eagerly, with great eagerness, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And God, I pray that this would just so honor you. And I pray that there'd be this... this, this, um, increasing and uh, multiplied blessing upon us like Psalm 133. And I pray that it also just be a witness to those who would come in or to those that we rub shoulders with, that we're, we're part of this church. It's, it's something different. It's not just a social club. And it's not just some religious thing we do once a week. We are, there's a togetherness, there's a oneness, there's a unity in the spirit, a unity of the spirit. So God, I pray you do this. I pray you'd change us in the way that you need to and that you be glorified in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You're dismissed.